Chapter 12 As young as I was, age 15, when I committed to adopt Jesus of Nazareth as my sole role model, I knew enough about him, or I thought I knew enough about him, that I felt that, that I felt uh, I was able to uh, imitate his lifestyle of living for God the Father by living for other people instead of for myself. I knew it meant sacrificing life of the ordinary for what was called a higher calling, which I could only attain with grace, a supernatural energy, which we received totally free. I fully espoused that uh, <clears throat> women dispose ourselves to be recipients of grace, but we never earn what it truly is. It's always really a true, truly a free gift. I was full of idealism, as you can see. So when I embarked on 12 years of training and uh, education in seminary life, I was determined to go all the way through. In those 12 years, I took on cycles of life which changed the normal male in a natural way. As one systematically goes from high school to college <clears throat> to postgraduate mentality, if postgraduate school is in, in the cards, that normal involves all the years of adolescence. For me, it started with the age 15. All of my adolescence from then on to years of young manhood to the beginning uh, that one normally goes through as one enters the world of employment. I look back and I see how I matured as the quality of life changed dramatically, but paradoxically, without any drama in the gradation of those upward involvement, of that upward involvement. What was glaringly different for, for us who were in a seminary life versus those in a customary institutions of education was that we embraced a life of preparing to be celibate for the rest of our life on earth. I didn't truly grasp how huge that was. I thought I did, but what I grasped wasn't the total meaning of being celibate. This preparation entails separating ourselves from all personal <clears throat> and intimate contact with women outside of our family circles, like from mother or aunts or cousins or other female relatives. This meant that we were prepared to forego marriage, which meant foregoing a life partner. It included having no family of our own by denying ourselves the opportunity to father our own children. The normal male in those developmental years begins to consciously or subconsciously prepare to choose a life partner as a wife and more likely than not a mother for his children. He looks for somebody that fits those roles. Those are the people he dates. That normal male begins imagining himself as a father, as a dad, as a husband, as a breadwinner, a protector of his castle, and all those things that go along with being male. The seminarian I was prepared to be preparing to be was one who lives for others and one who does it to have more time and energy to give to the mission of the Twelve Apostles as a follower of the Master of Nazareth. Looking back, I could see how I was focused on being unemotional. I needed to be logical, I needed to be firm, I needed to be rational. 
but I needed to be clear-headed. Therefore, that meant not giving in to emotions. To not give in to emotional states, but to stay calm and to ask for the grace to overcome the emotions that arose, especially the sexual emotions. Simultaneously, I was preparing to be warm and friendly, but not to the point of getting emotionally involved, especially with women or with girls. All of this I was taught, and I thoroughly assimilated, required grace on a massive scale. And this was the reason why so much time of our education and training was devoted to prayer and to sacrifice time. Sacrifice time meant learning to devote to the needs of others versus the needs of one, oneself. The orientation toward celibacy created an enormous and fundamental difference in my development as a teenager, as a young man, to one ready to be fully employed in one's chosen field. And my chosen field was in the role as a priest. The difference between me, the seminarian, and the normal male out in the world involved, the normal male involved in the world's culture and the world's pop culture was so enormous that most who began studying for the priesthood dropped out way before ordination was even in sight. In my case, for instance, there were 13 of us who began as freshmen in high school. Only two of us finished the race 12 years later to be ordained. But besides the 11 that we lost of the original crowd, we also lost at least 13 others who had joined us along the way. But they also went back to normal society. Our society was in fact too abnormal to attract the vast majority. We were told and we told ourselves that we were a special society. We did not consider ourselves an abnormal society. We may have seen ourselves as winners, but much of society saw us as they who chose the abnormal. And to this day, the life of celibacy is still considered too abnormal in normal societies, in all countries, not just this one. It used to be estimated that less than 10% of the aspirants to the priesthood make it to ordination. I don't know the current estimates or the actual statistics. As you may probably know, there are many rumblings throughout the Catholic, throughout Catholicism, to do away with the celibate clergy. But I wouldn't hold my breath waiting for that to happen in our lifetime. In my day, which is, say, between 1949 and 1967, the majority who entered seminary life did not begin as freshmen as I had in high school. Many start out as freshmen in college or as the third year in college, which is where the study of philosophy begins. And anybody that studies for the priesthood that wants to be ordained, beside before ordination, he has to have four years of theology, but before those four years of theology, he needs to have two years of philosophy in a Catholic seminary. The philosophy mostly taught in my day, again, was scholasticism, with a rise in what was known as neotomism. Both are based on what Thomas Aquinas, in the 13th century, 
translated from Aristotelianism when he translated from the Greek to the Latin. He translated all of Aristotle's philosophy. Had it not been for Thomas Aquinas' translation, the West would probably not know much of Aristotle as it, as it does know. Aquinas in one, again, in, 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 my, one in, my, in my day, one made a formal vow of celibacy in the third year of theology, when one was normally bestowed the order of subdiaconate. The orders of diaconate and priesthood took place after that. Priesthood was at the conclusion of uh, four years of theology. So to summarize, one did not make the formal vow to remain celibate for life after at least two years of philosophy and three years of theology. But we were taught to start thinking celibacy for life by starting with what they called custody of the eyes. Custody of the eyes was a practice that began for me as a freshman in high school. And custody of the eyes meant look at girls and look at grown women, but do not study, do not study their body. Do not focus on their body. Focus on their face, but avoid dwelling the visualization on the rest of the body. By dwelling on the rest of the body of a girl or a woman, one's sexual urges are likely to be aroused. To avoid that temptation from happening, we were asked, do not let the eyes wander where concupiscence wants them to go. Concupiscence means a strong desire, especially a strong sexual desire. And it is believed that all human beings have concupiscence as part of their human nature. Men have it and women have it. I heard this theme of custody of the eyes presented to us repeatedly throughout the years of study from one spiritual director to another, after another, after another. A spiritual director is one of the faculty members whose special focus is to help the seminarians shape their character as much as possible to be like Jesus Christ. We were all very well, very well aware, of course, that no, none of us were close to being that, but that was our model, that was what we were to aim for. In fact, once I formulated the metaphor which I explained in chapter 2, where I delineated how we commit to memory what in turn becomes our guide for every action and reaction to every experience that we encounter. I realized that it was the spiritual director who primarily shaped what went into those nine bins of what I called attitudes, beliefs, customs, ethnic identification, feelings, interests, self-perception, traditions, and values. The acronym you may remember is ABC, E-F-I-S-T-V. And what the spiritual director did then was he saw to it that each one of those bins reflected as much as possible the character of Jesus of Nazareth. It was Jesus of Nazareth who was constantly brought up to us as the model to allow, the, the, as the model to follow 
so that those nine bends would grow within us as a guide to follow that master's footsteps so that they would lead us to the Father who is in heaven. Each of us seminarians was to seek out the spiritual director to make him our individual director of our spirit. With his counsel, we were to isolate troubled areas in our development and to shape our growing character to follow Jesus, whom we believe to be the true Son of God. His two natures were reinforced on us, as well as the trinity that he belonged to, which consisted of three persons with one nature. Jesus, we believed, was one person with two natures. He came with his divine nature, and he added on the human nature. In the Trinity, he was one of three persons who shared the nature of divinity, the one God. I'll explain more about those two themes and what the Catholic Church held at that time when I was studying. Again, I want to emphasize that because of the vow of celibacy, the Catholic Church very deliberately demands a lifestyle totally different from what societies the world over have developed and transmitted for centuries as the norm for the normal male. To be celibate means more than abstaining from sex. It is a life devoid of a life partner. It commits one to be parentless with no possible opportunity to sire offspring. Offspring, once children in general, is in the general norm, has become unquestionably, unquestionably the major legacy which a person can leave on this earth. To leave a son or a daughter, or one of both, or more than one, is the major legacy that one can leave on earth. Celibacy meant giving that up. Surrendering all of that consisted or constituted a major sacrifice. And the church always recognized that. Many do not make the sacrifice because many, in truth, cannot even imagine being able to live either without a life partner or without their own children or without an outlet for the sexual component of human nature. The church has not been blind to the enormity of the sacrifice and has fostered the practice of sublimation. In essence, this entails deliberately denying oneself the right to have a child, to be married, to have an outlet for the sexual component. To sublimate means to rise above that desire, that urge, that component of our nature. Denying oneself that right and that opportunity is done in order to go for a higher cause. That cause being fully available to the bringing people closer to God and not having his, the distractions of pleasing the self with one's own personal family, with one's personal problems. Those who can freely adopt that meaning, the meaning of celibacy, are asked to impose the huge sacrifice that it entails and to impose it upon themselves. I acknowledge that even with every intention of wanting to make that sacrifice, 
It's extremely difficult to do. What made it especially hard for me was that I felt so unnatural to not live the way a normal male lives. For those of you who have been exposed to these recordings of mine since I began telling of the events which literally took me from one level of life to an entirely new one, you will remember that since age 13, I began being very close to individual priests and to clusters of priests, so I knew firsthand how they lived. But it wasn't until I began living that life that I literally experienced the weirdness of how unnatural it is, or it was to make myself so apart from my fellow human beings, and not just the males, but the females, to make myself so apart from human nature. As a freshman in high school, I was presented that practice of custody of the eyes as a preventive measure, meaning if one does not look long and hard at the opposite sex, one is not likely to develop a desire. The desire would be to get closer and to the point of intimacy with women or with girls. The theory is not as true as it is preached to be. There is some truth that if one does not look at the whole body of the individual woman as much as is possible, one diminishes, perhaps, the temptation for further arousal. I never experienced that custody of the eyes erased the temptation completely. That by itself did nothing to make the practice of celibacy easy. What I discovered on my own that made it easier to have fewer sexual thoughts or fewer sexual urges happened without me consciously doing anything about it. In fact, I developed a patterned behavior that was well established before I even realized that it was a pattern. And I have said what I'm about to say to you now to a number of very few people what it was, what pattern it was that I developed. And every time I told the few that I did, I experienced the reaction that they were probably thinking to themselves as I spoke. Truth is stranger than fiction. In other words, they believed what I was saying, but I think they found it very hard to believe. The pattern that I developed totally unconsciously was to view the body of the opposite sex as I viewed a wooden or a plastic model, life-size, which is used to display women's clothing. In other words, not to view women in a downgrading manner, but to imagine them having no genitalia, no pubic hair, to view them as asexual, with breasts, yes, but no nipples, with which they nurse children, of course, legs and arms and torso, but no gender-identifying characteristics. Having developed that pattern, I didn't have a major curiosity to view women naked because they looked like those models which have legs and arms and a torso and a face and hair, but they don't have the characteristics that make a woman sexual. I never viewed pornography, which was not as available as it is 
now since maybe the 60s in this country. So I don't even know when exactly I began developing this pattern, but it seems like it must have been a major part of those 12 years that I was preparing. I can't truthfully, I cannot truthfully say that even my pattern eliminated all thoughts and urges to give in to concupiscence. But looking back, I think I can safely say that I managed to cut down on the frequency or the intensity or the duration of such thoughts and urges. That is a result I did not, by and large, see women as sexual human beings. I saw them as mothers that they were, or sisters, or daughters. I saw them as wonderful people, but I did not see them as sexual. It was like the, the nuns, the, 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 the habits which nuns used to wear before the 60s, before Vatican II, when they were allowed to get out of the habit. Those habits made them look very non-sexual because they, all their body was covered except their face. It wasn't a burqa, but it was as close to a burqa as what we see in modern days. Nuns did not present themselves as sexual beings because of how they were clothed. The women that I saw were not appearing as sexual human beings because I did not see them as having sexual characteristics. For years I remained determined to adhere to sublimating my natural desires. The sublimation worked, meaning that I knew that it was natural to have these desires and we had a right to give in to them, but if we rose above them, for a higher cause, the sacrifice we were making would be something that would enable us to be closer to the model we were following, who was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I keep repeating that it, oh, these were the things in my day because I think there have been tremendous changes in all societies since the revolution of the 60s, the cultural revolution of the 60s. And within the Catholic Church, there have been so many different changes. So I have to keep stipulating how things were when I was in the seminary. Things may be totally different now. But I have to record what it was that was going on in my separation, in my, in my preparation. End of chapter 12.